Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hi, listeners. Benjamin here with this week's edition of Coronapod. I'm in the South London basement once more, but I'm joined on the line by Noah Baker and Amy Maxman. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi, Ben. Hi, Amy. Today on the show, we are going to be looking at one of the big questions that researchers have been grappling with, well, since the very beginning of the pandemic, I guess. And that is, where did the SARS-CoV-2 virus come from? Now, we're expecting some news from the WHO. We don't quite know when that's going to be, but it will be the final report from a WHO team who went to China a few weeks back to try and get a bit of a handle on the answer to this question. And uh, and Amy, this is something that you wrote about at the time. Yeah. So they had a press briefing on February 9th about their investigation. And to be clear, WHO sort of, they organized the trip. You know, this is why we needed WHO. They did sort of the logistics. They put it together. But the team wasn't all WHO people. There were some WHO scientists, but it was 17 researchers who were from China and 17 international scientists. So they spent two weeks in China, mainly in Wuhan, figuring out what they could about how this all started. I'm really keen to know one of the big questions, which is why do we care at this point, right? This happened a long time ago. It was horrible. It happened. Why do we need to know? You know, is it just digging up old ground at this point? Well, I mean, I guess the idea is we want to know where scary new infections emerge from. So the idea is if we can figure out how this began, maybe we can try and prevent it the next time. And so I think whenever there's a new outbreak of kind of an emerging disease, there's really a race to figure out how it happened because you want it to not happen again. Okay, in which case, what have they found? What is the sort of outcome of this long search? Because we've talked a lot about the various different origin hypotheses and ideas. You know, we know that it's likely that this originally came from a bat, but we weren't sure whether or not there was an intermediate host. There was a lot of talk at the beginning of the pandemic about this particular wet market, this live animal market. Any news on that? Is that still the prime suspect? Where have the WHO and that team of scientists got to in their search? 
Yeah. So this was very much like an investigation for what was the origin. But I want to underscore one thing first. This is two weeks, which is really nothing. You know, none of the scientists I spoke to for the story about this were like completely surprised that we don't have the definitive story of where this came from because it was two weeks. Still, it's a good start. So, you know, you set up collaborations, you figure out logistics, maybe you don't have to meet every single person in every single lab the next time around. So anyways, this is kind of what they did. So they went to Wuhan. They confirmed this idea that the first case that we know about was on December 8th, 2019. That's when an office worker in Wuhan complained of having these COVID-like symptoms. So that's kind of as far back as we get. But they tried to trace it back even earlier. So they did a lot of digging. They reviewed a lot of health records from Wuhan and, and the surrounding area from the second half of 2019. And they identified in these records around 100 people who had symptoms that looked like symptoms of COVID-19. And they went and they actually found 67 of these people. They tested them for SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, but they didn't find any antibodies in these people. So they also went to hospitals and they found 4,500 patient samples And they tested all of those samples for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And again, they didn't come up with anything. So they didn't find, you know, evidence that this was at least widespread before December 2019. And then there was that wet market you mentioned. And towards the beginning, a lot of cases of COVID were traced back to this wet market in Wuhan. But we're still not sure about that hypothesis because it turned out that a lot of other people with COVID hadn't gone to that wet market. But nonetheless, they went back and they identified 10 stalls that sell wildlife that are live. And those were either wild or farmed animals, things like rabbits and badgers, things that we now know are susceptible to getting SARS-CoV-2. So they identified these stalls, but they didn't really go deeper than that. I think that's a time constraint issue. And previously, researchers in China have tested around 30,000 wild, farmed and domestic animals but they still hadn't found any evidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection, except for some cats, but that was in like March 2020. So they could have gotten it, you know, post this pandemic. So it's looking like perhaps the market may not be the front runner, which is something that we've been thinking for some time. But there is still a hypothesis that this could have come from meat or come from animals, specifically frozen meat. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. So that's something else that the team explored. And this hypothesis that SARS-CoV-2 was in some frozen food that people then ate, and that's how it started. This comes from a few different studies. So there's a preprint on the bioarchive that appeared in August, and it found that SARS-CoV-2 can remain infectious on the surface of frozen or refrigerated meat for more than three weeks. There's another line of evidence, which was there was an outbreak in Beijing that just seemed to sort of pop up out of nowhere. And the investigators of that outbreak found some viral particles on cold-stored salmon at a market stall in Beijing. So that was another thought. Maybe that's where this outbreak came from. And what the WHO did is they went through a lot of that evidence, but they came up with nothing there. They didn't find much more as far as this being carried on frozen salmon. So I would say, you know, among the scientists that I talked to, it's not really holding a lot of water. That's definitely not their leading hypothesis because there's not a ton of support for it. You know, whereas... You know, when we can think about natural spillover, there's a lot of evidence for that. You know, one is we know that bats carry tons of coronaviruses. We know that there's lots of other coronaviruses that are found in nature and that have spilled over like SARS and like MERS. So that's why this idea of it being a natural origin sort of makes sense when you think about the way that evolution works and the way that animals harbor coronaviruses. And you've said natural spillover several times there. 
But there's one other kind of hypothesis, which was bandied around quite a lot at the beginning of the pandemic. It's stemmed a series of conspiracy theories, which is that perhaps this virus was actually leaked from a lab, either deliberately or accidentally. Now, we should add that the evidence suggests that that is not what happened, but it is something that the WHO has looked into. Yeah, for sure. And they need to, because I think it's quite popular here in the US, at least I can say for sure, not super popular among the scientific community, but it's definitely something that people still think might have happened, even though there's not a lot of evidence for it. So there's this Wuhan Institute of Virology, And it happens to be, you know, in Wuhan. So I think the main line of thinking here is like, well, that's just too big of a coincidence. And so what the WHO did is they went to this Wuhan Institute of Virology and they had sort of extensive discussions and interview with everybody who works at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And they concluded it was, you know, unlikely that it was leaked from there. And also that the scientists there didn't know anything about this virus. They weren't handling a virus that looked like this, and they didn't know anything about it prior to December 2019. So there's really nothing to support that idea. And yet it's an idea that just won't go away. And it's maybe not the first time, not the first disease outbreak that the finger has been pointed at something like this either, is it, Amy? No, it's not. There's a couple of virologists who've really studied sort of the evolution of coronaviruses, and they've put out a couple of papers. For example, in March, there was a paper by Christian Anderson and Robert Gary from Tulane University, and that really looked at the changes within the RNA of coronaviruses and sort of said that, you know, this fits in perfectly, you know, within a family tree. So it doesn't make sense that it was something that was just created But they realized with that paper, people were not sold on the idea. And when I talked to Bob Gary, he sort of, I don't know how to say, he's a bit pessimistic here because he feels like there's really nothing that's going to convince a certain set of people that it's not a lab leak. And this comes from prior experience. He has a lab that I actually spent a lot of time in, in Eastern Sierra Leone that studies hemorrhagic fevers. And he set that lab up in this area because there's a lot of Lassa fever here. That's a disease that appears a lot like Ebola. It's another viral hemorrhagic disease. So he created this lab there. And then there was an Ebola outbreak nearby. And immediately he was being accused of having created Ebola and leaked it out. So he's been at the center of this before. He kind of said something that stuck with me a little bit. He was like, a sort of like, you know, you build a fire station in a place where there's a lot of fires. And this is kind of like there's another big fire in that area and people turn to the fire station and say, well, kind of fishy that you're there, right? I have to say that when the pandemic really started to take hold and this lab leak hypothesis started to gaining traction among particular groups of people, especially conspiracy theorists, Nature had a huge spike to one article that it had written in 2017. Massive spike, actually, which was about the opening of this lab in Wuhan. And the headline of the article was inside the Chinese lab poised to study the world's most dangerous pathogens. And you can see how people will put two and two together. And they'll think, hang on, lab to study the most dangerous pathogens in the place where we found that a pandemic is emerging from, people jump to that really quickly. And it's a bit of a logical fallacy to do that, because that's not really how things work. Just because those two things are coincidental doesn't mean that they are causal. But people do jump on that bandwagon. And I was so fascinated by this conversation that you had that I wondered if it might be interesting to do a bit of a Corona pod first and just listen to a kind of a couple of minutes excerpt from that conversation. Sounds great. 
Well, you know, people will get, you know, these preconceived notions, these prior hypotheses in their mind, and then it's hard to get them out. But it can be used against you. Your competitors can say, well, look, they have all this laboratory research going on, and they have the viruses in their freezers, and so they must have just released it to get more funding, something like that. And uh, I don't think you're ever going to convince people that the reason you were there was because diseases like this were present before. You said your competitors, so you feel like scientists also fuel this idea? Yeah, it can happen. It sounds untoward and something that you wouldn't do if you were a scientist, but it happens. So in that case, I feel like there's a motive, right? It's like there's competition yeah. there. But have you come to any thoughts about why this is why? such a appealing hypothesis for a lot of folks out there who are not scientists? I mean, in terms of the COVID-19 outbreak, there's a lot of politics that are going on. Obviously, I'm not a politician, and so I can approach it from a scientific point of view, but there's a lot of that preconceived sort of bias in some of the people that are doing the lab leak hypothesis just want to pin something nefarious on the Chinese government. There's a whole other class of people, too, that are opposed to doing research on animals, and a lot of people that go out to look for new viruses in the wild obviously are going out and trapping bats and other species. And some people are just basically opposed to that. There's another whole group of people that are opposed to genetic engineering of any kind. And then yet another group who are, you know, kind of opposed to doing research on viruses that we call gain-of-function research. Now, there's a lot of confusion about that term. Uh, You know, most of the work in virology doesn't involve trying to make the virus more pathogenic. That would be gain-of-function research. And there's some legitimate reasons to do that but then a a vocal group of people that are just sort of violently opposed to that. So a new outbreak occurs, the gain-of-function critics come out and say, well, maybe that was gain-of-function research that just got out of control. So it seems like a fairly sort of broad group of people then, Amy, that maybe have subscribed to this theory. And I think in a Corona pod many, many months ago now, we talked about, I think we called it the misinformation, disinformation pandemic and how, you know, seemingly disparate groups would come together under an umbrella to all believe something that collectively you might not expect them to. Yeah, I thought Robert Gary's different categories of people who do this is really interesting. And to me, it speaks to sort of prior biases. You know, if you're someone who sort of thinks that scientists cause harm in the world through GMOs or animal testing or, you know, human testing, then maybe it's kind of appealing to have a hypothesis where somebody intentionally wants to cause harm through a lab leak. You know, and I should say, I very much believe we should investigate lab leaks because they do happen. Um, So I don't want to say this could never happen and scientists would never make a mistake. Of course they make mistakes. But I could see how that hypothesis would be overwhelmingly appealing, even without evidence, for somebody that's pretty sure that scientists usually do harm in the world. Absolutely. It's the kind of confirmation bias problem that we've faced many times throughout this pandemic. And it stems from a position where people's willingness to believe a theory is driven more by, I suppose, their political, moral views or their desire to believe it than it is for the actual evidence that this particular thing happened in the first place. Yeah. One thing that I was really fascinated by that Bob Gary was talking about is the idea that researchers could potentially get on this bandwagon again and he kind of referenced the idea that maybe it would be in their interest for your lab to lose funding I guess because they might be able to get more funding I mean it did you speak any more with him about that you know I didn't I was also really surprised I didn't hear more but you're right that would be a great story geez what kind of reporter am I (laughs) (laughs) that is the obvious follow-up question 
So the WHO and this group of scientists have looked into these allegations, have investigated these allegations of lab leaks, and they haven't found any evidence for that. And as well as that, there is also some scientific evidence to suggest that various of the versions of the lab leak hypothesis also are not necessarily going to be true. Yes, there was another paper that came out in Nature Communications on the same day as the WHO press conference on February 9th. That one also refutes one of the theories that the lab leak people would sort of use to refute studies looking at the evolution of coronavirus. They would say, oh, there's this one change within the spike protein that no other coronaviruses have. So that shows it couldn't have been evolution. It has to have been lab made. And this paper showed that there was a coronavirus that's very similar to SARS-CoV-2, and it's in horseshoe bats that were found in a cave in Thailand in June 2020, and that it was super similar, and the spike protein is very similar to SARS-CoV-2. So that's just kind of another line of evidence saying this is something that could be naturally occurring. And I mean, um, something else that another scientist brought up when I was reporting this piece was, you know, maybe what would convince people is like this really perfect nail in the coffin, you know, Agatha Christie ending where we know all of the parts of how SARS-CoV-2 started. But the truth is we pretty much will never have that because that perfect scene, like at the end of Contagion, where we see Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, shaking the hand of the chef, we don't actually ever see that in real life. Like even the sort of story of how the West Africa Ebola outbreak started, where there's a young boy who's playing underneath a tree where bats roost, that's very hypothetical. So the truth is, if we're looking for that perfect scene, we're probably not going to find it. Everything is going to be sort of these studies that add more evidence into one category and a lack of evidence into another category. And it's also worth mentioning that as we get more information and as investigations go on, it may get more complicated before it gets simpler. I mean, there have also been reports of SARS-CoV-2 RNA or certainly RNA that looks a lot like it being found in blood samples from European countries from before December. Now that needs to be verified, but that could suggest that SARS-CoV-2 was actually being transmitted around the world quite some time before. But we don't really know. And these investigations need to continue for us to be able to find out those answers. Well, which brings us back round, I guess, to what I said at the start of the show. The WHO's report on this trip is due out. What's the value of them kind of saying, well, we don't really know. We still think it's this, but we don't know for definite. Is this not just going to add more grist to the mill for people to say, ah, but you would say that, wouldn't you? I think there's going to be a set of people that are going to say that no matter what. But you know, what I've read is it's not like they went to Wuhan and did nothing. So they've done a lot. The fact that they didn't come up with evidence still tells you something, you know, that's sort of the process of science is often ruling out alternative hypotheses. You know, they did explore the idea that this was spreading widely in November and December in China, and they didn't come up with anything. So that sort of tells you something, even though it's a negative result. I think that's the funny thing about science, like, Some of the most interesting results are negative results. And in the meantime, the kind of search for the origin origin, by which I mean the animal origin, the bats that this first came from, is also ongoing, which is a kind of a slightly separate search to work out how the transition into humans happened at some point. And so we've talked about that on CoronaPod before, people digging out bats from freezers, trying to find coronaviruses that are very closely related to this one to see if they can get a better sense of how it could have evolved in their original bat hosts. Well, let's leave it there for this week's show. Perhaps we'll touch on the report when it comes out in a future episode. But for the time being, Amy and Noah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Amy. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.